The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. And so tonight's our last night looking at this quality of the heart we call the paramis, the ten beautiful qualities of the heart. So over the last nine months or so, we've been looking at some of these different qualities like generosity and truthfulness and this commitment to non-harming and the quality of persistence and patience. And now we're looking at determination. And I mentioned this so-called steely, steadfast quality of the mind It isn't something that we do because we want to be determined, we want to be resolute. It's something that arises naturally. And this is essential to understand about the way the Buddha taught. Because the whole path, it has to be understood as a natural arising, not something that somebody does. So that's so interesting. Like Awakening happens, but somebody doesn't awaken. Awaken, or another place in the tradition, it's suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. There is suffering, but do you, when you're suffering, so-called you suffering, when that's like that, can you find the you that's suffering? What we can find is there is this experience of suffering, but where's the sufferer? So. This, the reason I make this point is the same thing is true with determination. A lot of times when we start to get a sense of what might be good or skillful, we just want to be resolute and just like, well, just do it. If that's skillful, just do it. You know, If it's good for us to not eat that particular kind of food, then let's just cut it out. Let's just not do it. Or if it's good for us to exercise every day, well, then I'm just going to do it. Or more to the point, if it's good to sit every day, meditate every day, then I'm just going to do it. But we all know that it doesn't work that way. What works is that slow, gradual process, as I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, of connecting the dots. So that powerful determination comes because the mind has gradually been growing the confidence, having seen that doing this, doing that, leads to this good thing, or doing these not-so-good things leads to this bad thing. We have to see it clearly over and over where we're connecting the dots. And each time we see something skillful leading to the release of the heart and something unskillful leading to a heart or mind getting bound up, each time we see that, that confidence builds. So if we don't have that perfect steadfastness, resoluteness, it's simply because we haven't connected the dots enough times. We just don't have the data, right? the direct, intimate experience of our life that allows the mind to be steadfast, to be determined and resolute. It's something that builds up. Now think, there are probably in each of our lives, isn't it true that there are a few things we're pretty resolute about? Like, for example, something silly. There are probably at least a handful of us 
that won't go to bed without brushing our teeth. <clears throat> and we're pretty determined, like that's just not going to happen. And even if we went to bed and we didn't brush our teeth and we noticed, we'd, some of us, maybe just a couple, would get up out of bed and go brush our teeth. Or other things like that where we have really connected the dots enough times like, no, I, I am tired of them drilling in my teeth and, you know, putting mercury in my, to fill in the hole or, you know, the stuff that they do. I'm just tired. I'm going to do, if I can do something, I'm going to do it. And now, how about other things that we have seen enough times, right? Maybe around alcohol or drug use where we've become pretty determined what we will and won't do. Or maybe around sexual or sexual activities, like some things like, I just don't do that anymore. You know, doesn't make sense. I don't care how colorful and sparkly the thing that's dangling in front of me is. I see the whole picture. You know, I don't see the, just the momentary pleasure, but I see what comes next, what comes next, what comes next. And so I'm pretty resolute because I see the whole picture. Or about lying, you know, speaking mistruths uh, in order to get something or to order to have somebody think some way about us. Like, oh yeah, it doesn't feel good. So I'm pretty resolute about that. Or gossiping. So we already have some things we're resolute about because we've tracked our experience. We've learned, oh yeah, this leads to suffering, this other thing leads to the release. I see it. I don't care what anybody else says. I have observed this as being true directly, immediately in my own experience. So I'm in that thing, I'm pretty independent of what other people might say. Now the things we're not independent, we can be swayed. You know, somebody says something and we get sort of enchanted by it and then somebody else says something else and it's like getting blown around by the wind and our resoluteness is not very strong. You know, we can be all excited about one thing one day and all excited about something opposite the other day. But we can, with mindfulness, get pretty clear if we track our experience about what works and what doesn't work. And the Buddha makes a big deal about this self-reliance, that the whole point of the spiritual path It's not sort of getting stuck on a teacher or a teaching, but to hear what people who have some appearance of knowing what they're talking about, hearing it, and then checking it out. And then if the initial evidence seems good, then we check it out again. That seems good. And we keep checking it out, and that's how we collect the data. And that's how, you know, with that persistence, that's how that resolute, determined, oh yeah, I can bank on this. So I mentioned last week, or maybe actually two weeks ago, and we talked about it last week as well, that like one of the things we can check out from the Buddha is this simple teaching. It's pretty commonsensical, but it's something you have to check out in order to become independent ab- around this teaching. The Buddha says that there are three basis, bases of all happiness, just happiness in an ordinary sense, generosity, kindness, and compassion. These motivations, so acting in the world based on letting go or renunciation or generosity, 
acting in the world based on kindness, acting in the world based on compassion, actually leads to happiness. So, I mean, if we really knew this, we wouldn't be mean-spirited. We wouldn't be stingy. We wouldn't justify harming others, right? Because we would have directly, immediately seen that when we do that with any intention, it hurts. And when we do the opposite, the heart feels supported, uplifted, feels good, feels light, beautiful. So if we're still wavering in those things, which I'm sure we all are to some degree, you know, where we can justify some stinginess, like when nobody's looking, (laughs) or some meanness, or some cruelty. Like one of the places a lot of us can justify cruelty is choosing to be unconscious of how we're part of systems that are unjust because it's complicated, you know? So because it's complicated, I don't really, or because we think that we can tell ourselves a story that it's somebody else's responsibility. Like who's responsible, like let's just assume that there's a possibility that our criminal justice system is unjust. Isn't it easy? I mean, I'm just speaking for myself. Over the years, it's so easy for me to think that, yeah, that's probably true, and it's not my responsibility. You know, even though I live here, <laughs> it's my community, my tax dollars supporting our criminal justice system, but we somehow expect that some of these systemic problems are going to take care of themselves. So, this is how some of us, you know, we might not actually go out and hit people, steal from people. But we're, we might be willing to be part of systems that are causing harm, but we're just too busy to care. Or we're, we conveniently have an idea that it's somebody else's responsibility, that I don't have to, or, or that it's complicated and it's hard to figure out what to do. All of which is true. You know, it, it is somebody else's responsibility too, you know. And it is complicated. It's not clear like what to do, at least not to me. But that doesn't mean not doing anything is the best response just because it's complicated. So the first step is just for us, like we hear these teachings from the Buddha, you want to become more efficient at happiness? Do you want more happiness, more lightness, more ease? then check it out. Cultivate generosity, not stinginess. Cultivate kindness, not mean-spiritedness. Cultivate compassion, not cruelty. And see what gets that emotion. See what begins to arise more and more in your life. And then, even in a more refined or more subtle way, one thing that the Buddha invites us to check out. And if we do check this out, perhaps we'll become completely resolute, fearlessly determined to set this emotion if we check it out and the evidence bears it out. 
And so one of the things, you know, this is a gross paraphrase, but one of the things the Buddha would say for us to check out is that cultivating over time, gradually, a radical presence, sensitivity, openness, what we generally call mindful presence, which means, here's the kicker, which means in those moments of being mindful, we think, well, I'm already pretty mindful. I mean, that's, that's a sure sign that you're not mindful, by the way. <laughs> the basic assumption that I'm already aware, like what, this is really the first insight when you start cultivating mindful awareness, is we realize how much of the time we're distracted. I mean, even during those formal times when we sit down to practice meditation, we're all we're doing, the only point, the point of what we're doing is to support the continuity of awareness. What we'll realize is, you know, maybe, who knows, I mean, I'm just kind of guessing, but 5 to 20% of the time, but maybe closer to 5%. But I just, some of you might be, you know, really skilled at this. But there's a lot of the time where we're not mindful. We're just literally lost in thought, now let alone during the day, and let alone people who don't even value mindful presence, which is probably at least half, if not more than half, of folks out there don't even know what we're talking about, aren't that interested. I mean, certainly a lot more today than maybe 10, 20 years ago, but still, it's not a common cultural value, mindfulness, And even those people who might value it theoretically aren't systematically doing anything to make it more likely that they're going to be mindful. And even those of us who are systematically trying to set this emotion to make it a habit to be mindful, there is so much momentum towards distractedness, being lost in thought, that we have to be really humble about sort of the task at hand. So when we're mindful, though, the reason why it's difficult, it means like when we're really mindful in a moment, that experience of being open means that in that moment or for those moments, the mind isn't dependent on meaning, on conceptual meaning. It's not, in a sense, entrapped or dependent or contained by the idea or the interpretation of that construction of my thinking mind about what's happening right now. So for example, sitting here right now thinking, I'm here at Kamagam giving a talk, that's not being mindful, that's being identified with a thought, I'm here at Kamagam giving a talk. The actual experience of being here at Kamagam giving a talk has nothing to do with those thoughts. Now, I could be mindful knowing that those thoughts, that the thought I'm at common ground giving a talk is arising in the space of the mind. That would be mindful, mindful, a moment of mindfulness, right? Knowing that, oh, that's just a thought. Here I am at common ground one more time giving a talk, or it's going well, the talk I'm giving, or it's not going well or whatever interpretation, but knowing that that interpretation, that that thought is there in the space of the mind, that's a moment of mindfulness. But being identified with the thought is 
being lost in thought. So some of our thoughts might be sort of what we would all agree is neurotic, like, what do they think about me, right? So we would think, oh, no, that's not mindful. But then when the thought sort of seems like it actually represents reality, we might want to say that's being mindful. But it doesn't matter how wise the thought is. What matters is, is the mind lost in it, identified with it, so that the thought has the semblance of this is reality. Thinking I'm at Common Ground giving a talk isn't reality. What's reality is there's a mind knowing a thought. That's reality. So this is what we mean by a movement of mindfulness. And I'm talking about this in terms of ultimate resoluteness. Because once we start to intuit the value of these moments of mindfulness, then we want to cultivate resoluteness or resolve that this is more important than anything, including death or (laughs) non-death. I guess we're not so interested in death. We're interested in avoiding death. But more important than anything, like in terms of our long-term well-being, more than kindness, more than generosity, more than compassion, more than physical survival. I'm just saying this theoretically, right? Like as a, a hypothesis to check out. It are these moments of simple and therefore radical presence, mindful presence, where the mind isn't confused by any of its constructions, any of its concepts. I mean, the mind may or may not be thinking in that moment, and that's okay if the mind's thinking. There's nothing inherently bad about thinking. The problem comes when the mind gets identified with the thought and therefore lost. It loses mindfulness, this simple and radical presence. Oh, it's just this being known. So that's really a good definition of a moment of mindfulness. Whatever's happening, you could be in the most difficult moment of your life or the most simple, pleasant moment of your life, but a moment of mindfulness is a moment where the mind understands this is being known. There's always an object that's being known. And the mind knows that that's what's happening. It's just an object being known. So like in terms of this moment or these moments of experiencing that we're all having right now. So just see if you can have a moment, you know, there'll be many moments of thinking about things and then maybe a simple moment of realizing, oh yeah, like that, numbness I feel on my toes right now, the numbness as sensation is just something being known. So in that moment, any meaning like my toes are numb, that falls away and there's just the actual physicality of that numbness, but the mind is recognizing that that sensation of numbness is just something being known. Or if I have a thought, are they getting it? You know, that's a thought being known. Or we hear the blower. It's just hearing being known. You see, it's a real step towards simplicity, a really radical step towards simplicity. And we don't 
let go of conceptual meaning because somebody told us to. The way that the mind drops its addiction, its identification with the meaning that the thoughts are constructing is recognizing that thoughts are being known. Sensations, physical sensations are being known. Hearing is being known. Seeing is being known. Like, can you notice the difference between the mind's interpretation or perception of what's being seen and just seeing? Right? Like, to notice that, like, seeing means that there's shape and color and form being known. Just the raw experience of seeing, that's different than the thought or the perception or the interpretation of what the mind is telling itself is being seen. You see, they're two different things. Both can be known. It's not like one's better than the other. But what's important is to realize that when one's being known, that that's what's being known. And when the other's being known, well, that's what's being known. Like that pure experience of seeing versus the perception of the visual experience. Same with hearing, of course. There's the sort of pure experience of hearing. And then there's the mind, oh, that's probably the furnace. That's not hearing. That's a perception or a thought. Oh, that's probably the furnace I'm hearing. But the actual experience of hearing that blowing sound, that's just that sound being known. And remember, the emphasis is on is being known more than the object, like the thought is being known, the sound is being known. Because it, that recognition that it's just something being known is a counterweight to the story that the mind would otherwise be constructing and getting identified with, right? It's like an alternative reality. Normally we're in the reality, living in the reality of the story that our mind is thinking, right? Does that make sense? And then we can break that bubble, pop that bubble by realizing it's whatever, whatever my life feels like, looks like, or is right now, it's just something being known. Life is never more complicated than something is being known. right? That's actually the subjective experience of our life. Something's being known. Now the, the key here, the, this, so this is one of those things the Buddha is asking us to check out. He's ac- asking us to check out, does generosity, cultivating generosity, abandoning stinginess, actually directly lead to happy states? Does cultivating kindness versus meanness actually lead to happy states? Compassion versus cruelty actually lead to happy states? And we check it out and we say, well, I guess he knows something, you know, although it's probably common sense, but if it actually works, why aren't we doing it? Like, why aren't we actually cultivating generosity, kindness, and compassion all day long? I mean, Basically, we think we're living all day long in order to be happy. I mean, don't we read the news and watch TV and do all the things we do in order to be happy? When I, if someone said, no, 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 this is what makes you happy, well, we would, you would think we'd want to do it. And we can do all those other things we do, but 
do them in the spirit of generosity, kindness, and compassion. And then the Buddha pulls out the kicker, like, those make you pretty happy, but you're still, you'll still be a vulnerable human being. You could re- get really good at cultivating generosity, kindness, and compassion. And in a relative sense, you're going to be a really happy person. And maybe some of us know people who are pretty good at generosity, the generosity, kindness, compassion thing, right? If we're lucky, we know a few people who are, relatively speaking, pretty good at these three things. And, <clears throat> and we'll have time at the end. It'd be nice to hear from people. But I'm guessing that our experience is that those people tend to be pretty happy. In the same way that those people we know who tend to be stingy, mean, and cruel are very unhappy people, generally speaking. Isn't that true? I mean, now, if it's really this obvious, we've been, I mean, it's, we've been a little foolish that we haven't been more devote, devoted to cultivating what actually leads to straightforward, ordinary states of happiness. And then the Buddha says, as happy as you are cultivating those three things, we're still, you're still in a state of being vulnerable. So you can even step outside of any possibility of suffering, but you have to develop a more uh, subtle resolve. And it's about realizing the mind, realizing the heart that can put things down. This is what we mean by being mindful. We're putting down meaning, we're putting down the mind's misunderstanding about concept, about its mental constructions. doesn't mean we're not going to pick it up. right? So just because in any moment when I'm sort of raging about something that somebody did, and then, and then a moment of mindfulness arises and the mind realizes, that's just a thought. And that knot I feel in my heart right now, that's just sensation being known, right? And that whole idea of me being so angry and me got to get revenge, it just pops, right? Doesn't it? It just disappears. I was a suffering being and then mindfulness arises and it realizes that's just thought being known, sensation in the body being known, unpleasant sensation, but it's just unpleasant sensation being known. And all of a sudden things are very simple And the heart is so much more free than it was a second before when I was lost, identified with the spinning, the rageful spinning of my mind, mental proliferation of my mind. So we start having experiences like that and then we become pretty resolute about popping the bubble, about being more and more mindful, more and more moments of mindfulness. And it's not about becoming somebody. It's about putting everything down. Realizing that the heart or the mind can put down, really we're only putting down one thing. We're putting down the mind's attachment or identification with its interpretation or its story. And who is the star? 
of all of those interpretations and stories that we get identified with? Me. Right? We're always the star. So that's why in Buddhism we talk about realizing the truth of non-self. doesn't mean, it isn't quite right to say there's no self, because that could just be another self-story. Right? I could start telling myself stories about how it's all empty. And later, a Buddhist saint, Nargajuna, <coughs> maybe like, um, I don't know, maybe 800 years after the time of the Buddha, I forget if it was the 3rd century B.C. or uh, Anyway, several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, this uh, uh, saint, uh, Nargajuna, says something like, um, Something, this is a a rough paraphrase, people who believe in emptiness are insufferable. You know, it's like, are hopeless. To sort of use the concept of not-self or emptiness or that it's all nature, there's no center to what's going on, to use it as a thought for the mind to get identified with is, is just more craziness, right? doesn't change. It's, this is like, would be a fundamentalist Buddhist. It's all empty, you know, getting on our platform. It's all empty. Because what's important is not the, not identifying with, or we could even use like, forget something subtle like the teaching on the not-self quality, but even something more, you know, acceptable like generosity you know and thinking yeah generosity is the way we should all be generous but making a big story about how stinginess is bad and generosity is good that's just a story that the mind's identified with so we're learning to trust like put our heart upon have faith in this liberating power of putting down all meaning. Not replacing neurotic meaning with better meaning, right? That's the world of therapy, which is really useful, right? And therapy exists not just when you go to you know, a professional therapist, but therapy exists in all spiritual traditions, including Buddhism. A lot of the work we initially do is we're replacing really neurotic stories with more wholesome stories. And our life works better when we do that. But then the deeper spiritual traditions point to an experience of going beyond the mind, the mind being beyond identification, attachment, dependency on any story. And we've all done this in moments. And those of you who've been practicing sincerely for a while, you're doing it in more moments of your life where you're experiencing this taste of freedom where the mind realizes it doesn't need to be identified or dependent on meaning. Like you can actually be a parent, you can be a concerned citizen, you can be a powerful activist, you can be a good friend, you can make love, you can cook a meal for yourself, you can do everything. You don't need, the mind doesn't need to be identified with a story to respond in a moment. We need stories when we talk to each other, like now I'm talking, I'm using language, I'm using concepts. 
right? So we need stories to build community, to maintain community. We need language for those sorts of things. But it gets really sticky and neurotic when we take the stories we tell, the mental interpretations, to be more than what they are. It's just a thought being known. It's like, it's a very ephemeral thing. Even the thought that I'm here, it's my responsibility to finish up this talk pretty soon. Like there's, that thought has some value, but it doesn't require attachment, identification. It can just be what it is. Like a momentary reflection on the reality of what's happening. And it's like, a, like what is a thought anyway? Pink elephant. I mean, that's a thought. Like there's not much to it. There might be a little reverberation, like why did he say pink elephant? And that's another little sort of like, it's just a little wave of mental energy, right? I mean, what is a thought? It's not substantial. But the thought like, you don't like me, or you think I'm stupid. No, that thought, if I get identified, right, so then the body gets involved, it gets tight, and then I think that thought must be true because, like, there's tension here, right? So there's, all of a sudden, we've created this imagined reality that there's a problem here. They might think I'm stupid. How can I convince them I'm not stupid? But if I have to convince them I'm not stupid, you know, and then it just goes on and on. And we look for a resolution with a thought. But what the Buddha says is the resolution is realizing it's just a thought. So the resolution to every single problem from a subjective point of view is to realize it's just something being known. Now that's a leap of faith. Because normally we think the resolution to our problems is to get a divorce or to find an exciting person to hook up with or to have some good food, or to get somewhere safe, or to get in shape, or the, you know, whatever we think. That's how we're going to be good. But we want to check out the liberating power of realizing it's just something being known. Like we could be fretting about global warming. I'm not saying that there isn't global warming, and I'm not saying there is. But in any moment of getting really worked up about it, I could realize... Oh, that's just a thought, an image in the mind being known. And whatever reverberation there is now in my body, like some anxiety, some actual visceral anxiety, well, that's just sensation being known. Thinking's being known, sensation's being known, here and now. And we don't even know, we can never know known by what. Like, who's knowing? We don't know. I mean, we could say, me, but... As soon as we say me, that's just a thought being known. So there's this fundamental mystery, this, you could say, openness. So when there's a moment of mindfulness, all the structures fall away. We're right in the middle of the mystery. It's wide open. It's quite alive and liberating. Initially, the taste might be terrifying because it's so, it's such an alternative reality to where we normally live. But we get used to it and we begin to appreciate 
the wide open space, the degrees of freedom, the lightness. <clears throat> and this is where love and compassion and generosity really come alive. Like initially, it's like a self-project to be more generous and to realize the fruits of that and be more kind and to realize the fruits of that. But <clears throat> when we start having more moments of mindfulness, the mind begins to intuit that generosity and kindness and compassion isn't something the self does. It's something that's left when the self disappears. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have this great line about the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart. They say it's luminous, it's awake, there's, or you could say there's knowing happening, right? That's the first quality. It's empty, right? There's nothing else but that knowing happening, and there's unstoppable compassionate action. This is sort of the fruit of practice. There will be three things left. And this has been confirmed in, you know, with different words, but like I'm thinking of Deepama, maybe you've noticed when you walk into the meditation center now, on this floor, not in the basement door, but the main entrance. And on top of the shoe rack, you see the, there's a woman there, an Indian woman. That's Deepama is her name. Deepama just means the mother of Deepa. Her daughter's name was Deepa. So, but to talk about that's a great Buddhist name, like no identity, I'm just this person's mother. <laughs> but anyway, Deepama was this really amazing saint and a teacher of, of a lot of the senior Western teachers uh, like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield uh, were all students of Deepama. She's come to the West before she died a few times to teach at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts where I've done a lot of my practice and I teach a couple times a year out there. <clears throat> and, um, but she said something very similar to this when somebody asked, like, what's your mind like? You know, there's emptiness, there's no center to it, it's luminous, there's mindfulness, there's knowing, and there's love. There's unstoppable compassionate action because the activity of life, when the greed and aversion is gone, what does that activity of life look like? Well, unstoppable compassionate action. What else would the activity of this life look like? And it doesn't mean in some grand way you're saving the world. It might be just in terms of how you're putting your clothes on. That's the unstoppable compassionate action or how you're taking care of your kid or how you're you know, running your business or you know, whatever, getting along with the people at work. So I wanted to save a little bit more time tonight because it's the last night we'll be talking about resoluteness or determination. And as I've been mentioning the last several weeks, we've all learned a lot about what supports this and what gets in the way of this. So it would be nice to hear your questions, but also your experiences from your practice, your life, where you have felt weak and feeble. It's nice to hear about that. And where you felt resolute at times in your life. And where that resolution, especially where it came from, you really understanding something about life. And then that confidence, that resoluteness, was born out of that clarity that you had from simply paying attention. And it's nice if you say your name too. So who'd like to begin? What comes to mind? Yeah, please. I'm going to pass it back to John. I'll open the window. It's kind of nice. We get to open the window. 
<laughs> Hi there. Oh, is this on? Yeah, but you have to point it right at your oh, mouth. Okay. Yeah, you know, um, I guess I've when I've been thinking about um, resoluteness and compassion, um, the one thing that sometimes um, can be a challenge to me is um, when I think about having to sort of um, maintain or create certain boundaries to maintain uh, healthy relationships and how to, I guess, practice compassion. Um, but at the same time, trying to sometimes, yeah, I, I guess I've just sort of in the past few months sort of come across just in working relationships um, that there are times where you do have to draw some sort of a, I don't know if it's a line or just, um, you know, something to, you know, I guess almost uh, to almost, you know, make sure that you're maintaining a relationship with someone and sort of having it grow in a way. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you're speaking from experience, like where uh, in previous experiences where you didn't have clear boundaries, where you didn't uh, speak in a fearless way to help define the boundaries, there was suffering. Maybe you're suffering, maybe the other person's suffering too. And so why couldn't a quality of resoluteness be born out of having seen what happens when the boundaries aren't clear, right? Because you've seen that maybe more than a few times, I'm guessing all of us. So then we get better. I mean, imagine or remember how it was when we were young. And uh, like the first time we sort of had a relationship with another person. And it was like, all kinds of deluded thoughts, like this is it forever, and uh, and uh, burying our soul and whatever we did back then, only to realize that, well, maybe we didn't know everything then. You know, maybe we didn't sort of take care of ourselves then. So how do we do that? So we make the mistakes, and then the the positive fruit from the mistakes we've made is we become more and more resolute. Let's not do that again. So that I think that could be a good example. It's like the desire, that wholesome, resolute desire to communicate well, to speak your truth in this relationship could be exactly what we're talking about, resoluteness. And, and to kind of shore up that resoluteness, you know, like if you're going to have a conversation to take the time to remember what you've learned from your previous experiences. And it's not only from our own. We learn a lot from our friends that we, you know, all the relationships we've seen happen around us. So we're collecting data directly, immediately, but also through observation. And we learn a lot. But we have to be reflective on it. We have to, like, draw to the surface what life has taught us. And it, <clears throat> this, is, this is a place where thinking is helpful. This is a good example where, like, why we don't want to think that thinking is bad. We just want to be able to put it down so we can pick it up in a fresh way. And so to think about all of what life has taught us around relationships and then bring that to bear in the relationship that's happening now. Yeah. So we don't have to repeat the mistakes because we see ourselves doing that, don't we? Because we we didn't take advantage of the suffering from the previous mistakes. We didn't 
like mine it and distill it. Oh yeah, this is what of that doesn't work. Thanks, John, for bringing that up. So yeah, Femi, want to pass the mic over? As always, Mark, thank you for the teaching. Um, so this has been uh, this has been up for me lately, in that um, you know a while back I made the commitment to stop trying to be good, like just, <laughs> just don't do it, you know, because I was efforting a lot and putting a lot of stress on myself to be a good person. And the commitment that I that I made instead with that was to be resolute in whatever I do. Uh, particularly if it's something where I feel there's some type of uh, ethical implications, moral implications, but whatever I do, that I'll, I'll simply do it being completely invested in what I'm doing, completely mindful of what's happening in the process. And so how that plays out is like, is uh, recently, like with, you know, when I'm studying a lot, and uh, instead of eating, you know, Doritos and, and popcorn. I felt I found that if I ate celery and uh, peanut butter, then like my body felt a little better, right? So like, there's that direct experience of it, and I didn't have to like, I didn't have to try anything different. It was just a direct experience of it. That was good. But my question is that there are many other things that I know are not good for me, but I still do them anyway. I have a full understanding why doing X, Y, or Z would be bad. Like, I can see myself in the process as I'm taking the cookie from the cookie jar, like, l literally and figuratively. <laughs> and, um, and, and, I, and, I, and the best I've been able to amass with that is that in some way, like, you know, my habitual life patterns, the cause and conditions that I've previously sown have made these, these current patterns so sticky that even with understanding them intimately, I haven't been able to let them go. So then my question is, with, especially with that second group, like how, how to work with that in a way that, um, that doesn't cause more efforting? Because what I've, what, I've, what I've tried to do when that comes up is like, well, Dang it! I just got to be more resolute and like fight through it, but it, that causes more suffering and tension. Yeah, yeah. Well, forgiveness, basically, and this is a really deep teaching because uh, you're basically saying, <coughs> uh, "How do I get in control?" And what the Buddhists suggest is we're not in control. And even though there's true that the mind is really clear that this isn't helping. But that's only one, it's not like the mind is one thing. Our mind says is not one thing. That's a self-view that the mind is one thing. The mind has many, many, many dispositions or tendencies. And they're not just like one. And so there could be a tendency like, you don't really need that cookie. And then there could be a tendency, I don't care, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> right? You know, it's like, don't you remember when I was five, my mom would give me a cookie when I was good, and that still that imprint goes deep, right? And uh, where we got rewarded with cookies that don't even taste good. <laughs> I found, not to make fun of those of you who like gluten-free cookies, but <laughs> packaged gluten-free cookies to me do not taste good. I mean, there I've tasted 
real gluten-free cookies, you know, that somebody made that have been good. But so anyway, I just the other day, I, I was just like, I need a cookie, but I was too lazy to walk to the co-op. So I came, you know, and raided the cabinet above the sink in case you are ever looking for treats. There's sometimes <laughs> treats there, but they've often been there for a while. <laughs> and so there were some gluten-free cookies that had been there for a while, and they weren't good at all. <laughs> but I ate them. <laughs> and it's like, and I knew that, but there I was. And your cookies were probably good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a real insight into the impersonal nature of the mind. And it's, it's really powerful to realize the fact that the cook, eating of cookies is happening is proof that it's not self. Because if it were self, I'd say no to this. But I'm not able to say no to this. There's conditioning that will have its way. And so in those moments when conditioning has its way, which also includes the positive moments, like when you stop eating that cookie or whatever, but that's not personal either. It's just a matter of momentum. What has in this moment, what has more momentum? Eating the cookie or not eating the cookie? And what, if, if any, what story, if any, is the mind making up about who's winning? I'm bad because this is, or I'm good, because that's another thing that's not personal, the story that's being told. It's all a lawful activity of causes and conditions. It's so shocking as we begin to realize that it's not personal. But just because it's not personal doesn't mean they're, gonna, they're not going to be consequences for eating the cookie. There will be consequences. Right? Indigestion or whatever it is for that being. Yeah, Andy, why don't you use the mic? Well, for me, I can see that it's a distraction oftentimes um, or avoidance. Uh, and I'm assuming that, that uh, the more I keep working on it, the more, you know, the more quickly it'll drop. Yeah. But... Um, it's not going very fast. But it's like <laughs> collecting the data. So when we eat the cookie, we collect the data, what gets set in motion. When we abandon the cookie, but let's say we use a lot of self-hatred, we see what gets set in motion. We put the cookie down because we tune in to the reality that this heart, in its essence, is already content. You know, We kind of look through the anxiety or when uh, Femi is studying, you know, look through the anxiety about all the work that needs to be done, and we realize in its more subtle essence, this heart is already peaceful and content. And then all of a sudden, it pops that pattern in the mind that needed a cookie because the mind realized it's already peaceful. So there are ways, but we have to be patient and just keep collecting the data and learning from what we see. It's like all that data gets put into the mind stream, and if, it's, if the data is collected with a mindful mind, then the patterns, it, it wears down patterns that don't align with the data that's being collected. Right? So if the cookie doesn't actually lead to any meaningful release, then eventually we'll stop eating those cookies. But the mind has to collect the data that it doesn't help. 
that it just perpetuates the sense that something's going to fix the anxiety that I feel. Yeah. Any last thoughts before we end? We just have a minute or so. People, somebody would like to share? Yeah, please. Why don't you wait for the mic, though? My name is Sudip, and um, I just wanted to say in the in the co-op and the grocery aisle, there's this... Maybe a little closer, Sudip. Oh, in the grocery aisle, there's a, a purple kind of packet. It's used in the fridge section, and they have this really nice gluten-free cookie that you could bake fresh. <laughs> <laughs> See, we don't want to know that. It's like somebody telling us, you know, the new House of Cards is out, and you can you can binge on that. <laughs> And then we'll all be dead tomorrow. <laughs> so forget what you just heard. <laughs> and we'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And just appreciating in the most simple way that we care about this life and with an easy extension we realize may all beings be free from suffering and the roots of suffering. Just feeling grounded in that simple value. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.